Hello and welcome, friends, to this week's springy edition of Sustainability Now with me, Justin Mogg. I'm so happy to have you along here on your community radio station, People Powered Forward Radio at 106.5 FM and live streaming to the world at forwardradio.org. We want to thank everybody again for donating during our so, so successful pledge drive. We exceeded our goal. Thanks to everybody who came out to our birthday party. We had such a great time. And thanks to you all, we are able to keep doing this awesome community-sponsored radio. Thank you so much, everyone. If you didn't get a chance to donate, you can still do so at forwardradio.org, or maybe you got inspired by that birthday party and want to start doing your own media that matters with us. Come on in. Get behind the microphones. We'd love to have you. You can click on participate at forwardradio.org to get involved. What we do on Sustainability Now is we bring in friends from around the community who are engaged in sustainability to pick their brains about how they're making a sustainable tomorrow a reality today. And I'm so grateful to have back in the studio my good friend Stephen Bartley. Welcome back, Stephen. Thank you. Muchas gracias. Yeah, de nada. <laughs> He's executive director of one of Forward Radio's proud community partners, these nonprofits in the community that support the station. And that is Sustainable Ag of Louisville, or SAO, which means salt, salt of the earth, right, <laughs> in, in Spanish. And you can learn more about SAO at salouisville.org. And we're going to talk about some of the things that SAO is doing around the community in this springtime when it's time to get engaged in agriculture, right? Uh, but we're also going to contextualize it in the broader global context of, of agriculture and food sovereignty. Uh, that's that's always been your passion, right, Stephen? How did you get into this work in the first place? Yeah, I was a suburbanite, you know. Oh, really? Grew up as a suburbanite in Long Island, New York. Oh, um, I didn't know that. But I guess it was my curiosity to travel. Mm-hmm. And I ended up being posted as a teacher in places that had a lot of agriculture going on. Yeah. In in the central province of Kenya. Oh, really? In China for two years where I was teaching with my wife uh, in an agricultural college and also in Puerto Rico. When we were in grad school, we, we started doing a little, putting seeds in the ground a little bit, growing some pigeon peas and caught the bug, I guess. <laughs> and then I went, I leaped like full tilts. And <laughs> my wife, thought I was just going on an like, uh, excursion to, to become like an investor in land, agricultural land in the public. But um, <laughs> as, as soon as we had procured a little 10-acre farm in the northeast corner of the Grand public, I announced to my wife that it was time for us to start planning to move there, live there, and farm there. And she was like, what? <laughs> so I said, oh, come on. This is going to be an amazing adventure. Yeah. She sacrificed five years. Wow. And then a sixth year while we were disputing and debating um, mm-hmm. coming back to the United States. Mm-hmm. And to keep the family together, I returned to Louisville with my family. And we had, in that time, we were farming, had three kids. And yeah. So life got complicated. And we moved <laughs> to Louisville. And, but we've kept the farm up. And um, actually, the farm is now becoming a guest house and retreat center for activists, burned out activists, or activists on their way to Venezuela, Cuba, or Haiti, mm. where we've planted a lot of trees, and now some of that lumber is being used to rebuild and add guest rooms and oh. upgrade the facilities. And so we're beginning to expand the activities on the farm. And the mm. farm manager who's been there 30 years has a tons of food planted at all times. And we, we eat well. It's a beautiful site near beaches. So, yeah, that's something that I'm um, looking forward to doing um, more and more in the next couple of decades. 
Yeah, that's wonderful. And uh, I know that feeling too of wanting to keep your hands in the soil, right? Like to stay grounded and connected to especially the seasons up here in the temperate zones. Seasons get kind of lost in those tropical areas, but still you get the rainy season and things like that. And just experiencing <laughs> yeah. like how things change over time. Mm. Um, yeah. To me, that, that's, that's re-energizing and it keeps me like connected to this larger cycle of life that I think is so important for us to stay tuned into, right? Absolutely. No, I, I recommend, um, you know, being out on the farm, out in the countryside. It was amazing. It was like therapy for for me personally, having three trips during the COVID, wow. I was able to be there and it was, they had a lower level of COVID in the country mm. we did in Kentucky, which was better than Indiana and Tennessee. <laughs> and then we plant, you know, our farm is kind of feeding the community. A lot of the na- adjacent lands have all been concentrated for cattle raising. Sure. And uh, so we're holding on to our 10 acres. And if you look at it in Google Earth, you can see our farm just by the tree, tree cover well, that's neat. You can see the boundaries of our farm by how much reforestation we've done. Wow. So I've been to the Dominican Republic in, boy, was it 1997 or something like that. Uh, what part of the country is your farm in? It's between two little towns called Rio San Juan and Cabrera. And uh, so we can actually see the Atlantic Ocean about oh, two okay. kilometers away as, as the crow or the <laughs> tropical crow flies. <laughs> and now there's a nice trap path to the beach, which Ooh. takes about an hour and a half to walk down to. Ooh. at a moderate pace uh, wow so it's it's pretty amazing yeah when i was down there in january i'm like glad i'm here not locked down in kentucky <laughs> <laughs> totally in january <laughs> yeah wow that's wonderful and of course you're also keeping your hands in the soil here locally let's talk about a few of the things that sol has in the works for our community one of them just coming up this week. We're going to start some weekly gatherings out at the Saul Garden, right? Tell us about that. Yeah, the weather's starting to turn, so it's looking yeah. a little more promising to get out there and uh, plant. So our community garden is is in Crescent Hill, and if anyone's interested in joining little gardening parties, Thursdays from 5 p.m. till about 7 or so, we'll be gathering there and gardening together. If you don't know much about gardening, you can come and learn. You know, we share our knowledge yeah. and then we share uh, harvest as we go along. So it's a nice place to garden as a group. Right. And, and learn from each other. And we'll be inviting a lot of the kids who came through camps during 17 summers and former camp counselors and their families, with their children. And, and so it should be a diverse group of people coming every week and should be a lot of fun. Wow. Yeah. That sounds great. So starting this week. Throughout the growing season, right? Thursdays from 5 to 7. I imagine if it's raining, maybe you might not do it. But uh, this is a great opportunity, I think, for people because most of our community gardens in the city are, you know, kind of capitalist model. Like you pay pay your money and you get your plot. And it's maybe if you're lucky, you see somebody else there and you might talk to them and maybe even share some of your excess produce. But it's not really a collective enterprise like the Saul Garden is. And that means that we lose out on a lot of opportunities to learn from each other, to share things, tools, resources, knowledge, right? Harvest, right? There's always, at at any time of year, there's always like too much of one thing. (laughs) And so this is a great way to share. Yeah, and with people come with skills, that's all the better. And it actually lightens the work for some of us who are kind of tied to that land um, for many years. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> like, you know, like parents with babies that have to be attended to at all times. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> if people came on Thursday at 5, would they see anything ready to eat already? 
oh yes, there's some overwintering things such as daikon radishes have sprouted back nice. up. We have some spring garlics, onions, and some turnip greens, and some stuff that overwintered. Yeah. And we'll be putting in yeah, cool weather crops first and then uh-huh. maybe preparing some seed flats for summer crops that okay. we in our little greenhouse. Yeah, exactly. The raspberries are looking good. There should be some raspberries. Ooh. I don't know about the plums or the apples uh, or figs. Figs haven't shown their heads yet. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> not, not at U of L either. Yeah. Do we have any asper- asparagus there? There are a few patches of asparagus, so there will be snacks. They usually don't make it out, out of the garden because we munch on them. <laughs> right there. I love it, yeah. <laughs> That's the best way to eat is right there with your hands dirty in the garden. <laughs> you know it, you know it. That's awesome. And the soil there is pretty rich, right? You've been building it up over time. Yeah, since 1997. Wow. I don't know how many tons of wood chips that have, and then loads of horse manure, and we have some chicken manure over there now. Um, Straw, we put everything, all kinds of things into that ground. It's turned into a nice, rich, almost black soil. Sure. Black gold. Yeah, that's good stuff. So uh, a great way to learn and to share with others is to come on out to the Saul Community Garden in Crescent Hill, roughly where? It's off Crescent Avenue, behind Crescent Hill Presbyterian Church. Okay. And that's Thursdays from 5 to 7. If people can't remember exactly the location and want to learn more, you can go to salouisville.org. Yeah, drop me uh, a line and we'll, we'll make sure to get you in the loop. Yeah. And you'll know if it's the weather is temperate and we won't have it. Or right. That kind of information. Absolutely. And then, so, the, so we grow some of these vegetables in kind of like an urban agriculture setting as Saul, but we also do a collective real farming out in the country, right? Yes, sir. <laughs> yeah. yeah, it's been, since 1997, we've been growing out corn and, and beans and squash as a three sisters crop. And the last 12 years, we've done it at bar farms. Yeah. And we added a new heirloom into the mix genetically. And we have our own triple rainbow, Revelia triple rainbow corn that, that has become the envy of Galileans. Yeah. Crazy, yeah. Because it's all the colors of the rainbow except for yellow. Because <laughs> that's GMO. <laughs> yellow is a warning sign that we might have had some contamination from a little right. of the corn, which could be GMO. So we play it safe and don't replant any of the yellow. I'd eat it, but yeah. We have to leave it. <laughs> Still eat it. Poor, poor recipe. Yeah. <laughs> and it's called Rodelia because it's in Rodelia, Kentucky, which is right there in Meade County, kind of on the border with Breckenridge County, right? That's where the two heirlooms interbred. Yeah. And uh, the Bloody Butcher, which was uh, introduced by the Bar Farms, and our original Hickory King, which had been, we'd been growing for about 20 years before that. Yeah. So um, now we have a multicolored, beautiful, and I'm so proud because when you see it, Mexicans or people from Central America, they're like, they they know right away what it is. That's an heirloom. That's that's criollo. That's the real stuff. That's the stuff we eat. Wow. Interesting. Because you can't find it for sale, really. Can you? Right. Well, some people will grow ornamental so-called Indian corn. Uh-huh. Um, and then people ask you, can we eat Indian corn? And I say, oh, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, the Hickory King is an old heirloom variety of the Ohio Valley, and it has a very big green. And we still keep some of the original phenotype. When we find some from the year's harvest, we replant them also, so we have the pure original line also. Yeah. And well, the Bloody Butcher, but it's all... Now we have giant red seeds as big as the Hickory King. Wow. And a um, whole bunch of varieties. It's quite an interesting moment when we're harvesting and shucking the corn. 
you never know what you're going to find inside. Uh, white corn or red corn, how many rows, it's all different. It is fun. Yellow corn, purple corn. It's like Christmas. You unpack yeah. this little yeah. wrapping and you're yeah. like, what am I going to get this time? Oh, wow, it's all purple. You know? yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it's so cool. And, of course, we plant them in community with these other crops, which is a traditional indigenous method of growing enough grain and produce to sustain you through the winter for sure right and they grow really well together the the corn grows up as a big straight stalk on which the beans can climb and the the squash covers the soil and we we save the seeds of these things too and we're using heirloom beans actually from our sisters and brothers down in south america that's right yeah we've we've now got a collection of paraguay beans yeah cowpea type beans different sizes and shapes and tastes. And um, we grow them together pretty much and harvest them together. And Yeah, it's so convenient. Yeah. The, really. That you can put the seeds in the ground at the same time and then harvest everything at the same time. Uh, it's the it's the best form of farming, if you ask me. And, and we only have to come back and weed it once, maybe twice, if we're right. unlucky, right? Yes. I mean, it, yeah. it, it's rain-fed, so it totally depends on the weather. Yeah. But we've had some funky years where there was a windstorm come through and the corn kind of grows up slanted. But... We're not doing it for, you know, economic reasons, right? So it's okay if we don't have a perfect year, as long as we can save some seed and do it again next year. We have a more important goal than the yeah. economic goal, yeah. which is feeding ourselves. Yeah. <laughs> and, and actually, some of this corn during times of hardship up in Chicago during the pandemic, we sent sacks of corn up there. We've shared sacks of corn with the Latino community here in Louisville um, through the La Casita Center, and they've had drive-through collection of food yeah. staples and a lot of the immigrants from Central America and Mexico know very well how to how to deal with raw you know dry corn right right for them you know you know how to soak it you know how to yep. cook it um, yep. so yeah a lot of that food and the beans have, have gone as mutual aid so we have multiple purses for the harvest and, and, and shout out to bar farms who host us out there seventh generation uh, organic certified organic farm that not only lets us do this fun three sisters plot but hosts an amazing community supported agriculture csa program so that people right here in louisville can subscribe to the farm in advance and right now is the time of the year to do that and you'll get a basket of fresh local food delivered to you each week i think they have a meat csa as well as uh, vegetables um, so check them out barr farms um, I don't have their URL on the top of my head, but if you Google them, you can certainly find their Community Supported Agriculture Program. Uh, I'm speaking today with Stephen Bartlett, Executive Director of one of Forward Radio's proud community partners, SAL, Sustainable Agriculture of Louisville, which you can find out more information about at salouisville.org. And we should mention for listeners who aren't familiar, the kind of corn we're talking about here is not sweet corn. This is not what most Americans are eating day to day. This is corn for grinding for drying and grinding right yes yeah, good flower corn it's a dent corn by its form but yeah it's actually i've seen like other people growing it making claims about it which i think well that sounds good higher <laughs> protein higher nutrition really um, and then of course when you cook it with lime mineral to make masa or nixtamal it becomes much more nutritious uh, the protein is more accessible mm. and it's loaded up with calcium and mm. has some antioxidant properties from the from the cow itself. Yeah, that's the best way to use corn and make it very nutritious, as nutritious as wheat, you know. Yeah. When you cook it, make it hominy out of it. Yeah. Mm. So in, in celebration of that, uh, Saul hosts an annual uh, tamal, the tortilla fest, right? 
Yeah, this year we're, we're not prepared to go all the way to tamales. Okay. But we're going to have a tortilla festival on May 22nd uh, at the George Rogers Clark Park. That's such a great park. Yeah. <laughs> and we're, we're doing that co-sponsor with the Latinx organization. So it'll be, it should be a lot of fun. If you want to come, you know, get in contact with us and we can let you know what what meals might be uh, good to bring. We're going yeah. to share, uh, we're going to have a big pot of beans and we're going to make tortillas and do some hand grinding of masa Ooh, fun. and, and uh, have a fire and there will be some meat as well. Um, so yeah, it should be a really great time. Wow. Yeah. So come on out Sunday, May 22nd at one o'clock, right? This is a right. midday event at uh, the lovely George Rogers Clark Park with its wonderful topography and, and trees and blossoms in the spring. It's it's one I, I usually like to have like a little Easter picnic kind of thing there. Uh, and it's just off popular level road. Come on out on Sunday the 22nd at 1 p.m. Well, one of the things we do as Sustainable Ag Louisville is save our seed. And I want to talk a little bit about the importance of that, uh, the cultural power of saving seed, right? This is a form of people power in a sense, right? Well, in a way, it's really the only way that human beings can assure that they're going to have the, the genetic diversity needed to feed ourselves, right? Mm -hmm. And that is that to have small farmers saving seed and exchanging with each other. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, we do a lot of that. I feel like I don't have any biological grandchildren yet, but... <laughs> I have given, I have shared seed to many people here in the Louisville area, many wow. immigrant farmers, and I, sometimes I don't see them for 10 years, and I go to see their field, and I see that beautiful corn and beans seed that they have saved also and reproduced, and if I'm short that year, I can, they yeah. can also provide me the seed. So that's that's secure seed security. It's kind of a very profound kind of um, ag agronomic security to have many farmers saving seed and exchanging them. Yeah. Uh, it's a beautiful thing. Uh, creates community and it's a beautiful thing. Yeah. And in this world of commodification of agriculture, of uh, industrialization of agriculture, corporate takeover of our genetic heritage through through genetic modification and crazy legal arrangements which prevent farmers from saving seed and replanting them because it's the quote-unquote property of the agribusiness that created that genetically modified variety, right? Like this to me is just out of control concentration of wealth, right? Yes, no, the patenting of seeds is a great threat to, to all of us. We want a future for our seventh generation from now. Yeah. And so doing the genetic modification and then claiming that this is now your property yeah. <laughs> ignores the fact that thousands of years of farmers' efforts have gone into that. Right. And how are they being compensated? Oh, yeah. If that's just looking at it as an issue of <laughs> comp compensation for all the cultural capital and intellectual property that have been invested sure. in the seed. You know, any seed you get today has been invested in by hundreds of generations of people. And you lose a lot of the sort of local relevance of genetics when you globalize seed in this way, right? There's a lot of local adaptation that can happen if you let nature do the work, right? Absolutely. Um, yeah, depending on just a few hybrid seeds, let's say, that maybe have high yield in certain conditions, fertility, with pesticides, etc., it can give you an amazing high yield. However, it's expensive. The inputs are expensive. And it's a very risky thing because when you expand just a few varieties and, and they become widespread and the, and the minor varieties uh, disappear, 
then you have less uh, genetic diversity. And genetic diversity is the key to all future well-being of humanity. I mean, not only for our food sources, but also for the vegetation and the flora and fauna of our environments. Right. And, of course, the reason agribusiness does this, the way they make their money, isn't so much on the seed itself, right? But you were hinting at it's like this package of technology that they they really want to sell you is all the chemicals, the fertilizers and the pesticides, right? Herbicides. And then also the equipment, the huge equipment that now farmers don't even have the right to repair. These black box equipment with a computer on board, like they can't even fix if their tractor breaks, right? Like this is crazy. And the only way to afford that equipment is by expanding your scale of your production and buying your neighbor's farms and so that you have the displacement and the emptying of the countryside in favor of chemicals and machines. Right. right. So it's really a question of how, what kind of future do we want to see for our for our rural landscapes? Exactly. Do we want to see a future with people, with mm-hmm. diversity, with something that looks quote unquote messy? <laughs> or do we want this sterile, chemical filled sort of ruined landscape with very few people supporting mostly corporate giants? I mean, that's really the stark choice we face. And I think what you and I know, having lived in the global south, is that this is not the way the vast majority of humanity lives, thankfully, although it certainly is creeping in to places like Paraguay, where I lived, and the countries that you mentioned earlier, right? So let's start broadening out and looking globally. What is the situation for food sovereignty globally today? And how are some of these corporate problems we're seeing in, in U.S. agriculture starting to trickle into places where... People have been depending on the land and living off the land since the dawn of time, right? Absolutely. And a lot of people don't realize that they think, oh, we can't live without the corporate agriculture because they produce so much of our food. And to a certain extent, that has come true here in the United States and parts of Europe, Japan maybe. But most people in the world, probably 60 or 70 percent, still eat food produced by small or medium-scale producers in their food shed, in in their area. And that's the best way. I'm optimistic because really to have a biologically sustainable and healthy food system, you need to have a lot of small producers. Mm -hmm. And so the necessities of producing food itself are so challenging. And I believe that in the, in the long run, history will show that small, medium scale farming, it requires more knowledge and more sweat equity. It does. The more technology you have, the less knowledge you need, uh, ironically. (laughs) Just Um, let the robots do the work. (laughs) (laughs) But it's just prone to, well, as we know, it's concentrated wealth and it's made more hunger in the world because people who have been displaced and can no longer produce food as a way of living can no longer produce for themselves and therefore they become consumers in a city environment. And yeah. it's a recipe for mass dependency and with the climate shocks coming, etc. Right. We really need, you should get to know your local farmers. I think the friendships and relationships you have with local farmers may be life-saving. Yeah, oh, that's, that's such a great point. And it really points to the vulnerability of the system that we've created when people have lost that knowledge of the land and how to be productive on the land, that makes us kind of, in a sense, slaves to the industrial agricultural system and unable to fend for ourselves without it. And, you know, the COVID pandemic at the start when the supply chain started breaking down and you would go to the grocery store and not be able to find food really was a stark reminder of how quickly uh, we could be in a place of starvation, right? Absolutely. And also how exploited the system is we saw workers and meatpacking companies who were forced 
to work in unsafe conditions. Most of them got COVID, and many, some, many of them died. And the conditions were already pretty unsafe right. before the pandemic, right? <laughs> so Smithfield Plants in Missouri, I'm yeah. in contact with folks there. Um, it was a big fight to try to protect the, the lives and, of the workers. Yeah. And, um, and uh, we saw how, <laughs> you know, the essential, so-called essential workers were being treated as dis- disposable mm. workers. So, um, it's essential that they work. But they are, as people, not very essential. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that that was a shocking uh, wake up call, I think. And now that we've all lived through it, right? Like we can't unsee that reality. Mm-hmm. And the the key is that we internalize that and move forward in a positive way with that knowledge, rather than just try and sweep it under the carpet again, look the other way, and assume things will go quote unquote back to normal. There is a better way forward, and it's getting people back on the land, refamiliarizing yourselves with what should grow here, how to grow things here, native foods even. Like, we've totally lost that. Um, and, of course, you know, people come to places like the University of Louisville, right, to, to get the cream of the crop education, right? And all those graduates know nothing about how to survive, right? <laughs> they know nothing about what grows locally. You know, I speak to groups of students all the time and I ask who ate something in the last 24 hours where you knew where it came from. Not even that you grew it yourself, right? Hardly ever get a single hand up, right? Most people just don't even think about it. And that to me is the most frightening thing. Not that everybody needs to be growing 100% of their own food, right? Don't let that idea of a perfect 100% solution prevent us from thinking about how we start relocalizing, right? Yeah, the beautiful thing is, even if you don't have land, you can process food. Right. You can buy food from local farmers, process it, add value to it, and share it, you know, and yeah. make a living also while you're doing that. You know, I think everyone should have their hand in some aspects of the food economy. Even if it's just cooking some of your meals at home right. with your family, by not going out to eat, you could save money and buy really high-quality food from local farmers. Yeah. Cook it, and man, I'm telling you, it, it just makes you feel so much the mind is so clear and healthy when you eat well. Right? You don't realize that until you haven't eaten well for a while. <laughs> then when you eat a good meal, you're like, oh, oh yeah, <laughs> your body, your organs it. are going like, oh, thank you, more of that, please. <laughs> well, I mean, exactly, because one of the things you were saying earlier was about, you know, this is leading to starvation, but it's also leading to just malnutrition. Like the industrial system is about producing empty calories, basically, and that okay, we need some calories, but when we eat, we should also be getting the rainbow, right? They mentioned the corn rainbow, but it's you, you need to be eating a wide variety of things to get the nutrients you need. And our industrial system pushes us in the opposite direction, you know, narrowing down our choices and all of the things that truly feed us, right? Yeah, I guess it skewed our diet to a large degree uh, yeah. with what we eat. And in addition to having lower quality food available to us, uh, we also because we don't garden or work in the fields or get out in the hot sun, and we also lose our physical fitness. Yeah, anyway, that's I look right. At, I look at some of the so-called very poor small-scale farmers that I know in different countries. I mean, the fellow who works on my farm, the farm manager, he never had an education, but he's a brilliant agroecological right, right. grower. And he's 70 years old, has no teeth, but he is very fit. Yeah. Even though he smokes three big stogies of tobacco every day, he's like very fit, very strong. He walk for miles. People think, oh, he's he had an accident, has a gimpy leg. People have said, oh, I wonder how far he can walk. 
yeah. outwalk almost anybody. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> I'm talking with Stephen Bartlett today, Executive Director of Sustainable Agriculture of Louisville, one of the proud Forward Radio community partners. You can find out more about them at salouisville.org. So, you know, the situation can be kind of grim when we, especially when we look locally or even globally at food sovereignty, but there are some wonderful examples that you've noted, you've seen, you've experienced about people reclaiming their food sovereignty. And I wonder if we could talk a little bit about those, like Zero Eviction Brazil. What is that? So, yeah, we just had a stunning victory in Brazil. Brazil, because of this uh, fascist populist... Bolsonaro, right? He was about to end the moratorium on evictions that had been put put in place during COVID, protect people's housing. Oh. But what had happened with... It was a brilliant idea of the landless rural workers movement because they've been under great pressure on many of their settlements, which they have been establishing over, since 1984 all across Brazil, using the constitution and uh, that land should serve its social function for agrarian reform purposes. So the MST has resettled about a million and a half people on lands that Whoa. had been lost during the industrialization of agriculture. Wow. It's a long story, a fascinating story. And they... They are, a lot of their settlements and camps are under, are under direct threat by state governments, federal government in Brazil. And so they understood that eviction, the end of the eviction moratorium could also be used to displace agricultural communities from their land, as well as the urban people who were impoverished from, from the pandemic and couldn't pay their rent and that kind of stuff. Wow. So the moratorium was about to end. They did a massive campaign, zero eviction, zero eviction. And the Supreme Court was under so much pressure nationally, protests all over Brazil and internationally with a major Twitter storm and social media campaign. International solidarity, right? Friends of the MST here organized big efforts. Tens of thousands of petitions were sent, um, hand delivered to the Supreme Court judges. Wow. And they extended the moratorium to June, end of June. And now the, now the next stage of the campaign will be to try to push even further and secure some of the rights that people should have to not be evicted especially for the agricultural producers. Yeah. So, yeah. Well, I mean, I, I want to jump to another example too, but before we do, I mean, this touches on the whole concept of what is land? Is land property? <laughs> you know, is it capital? And, and who holds this crucial asset, right? I mean, there's another way to think about land, right? Yeah. Children used to ask me um, in the garden, they'd say, well, whose land is this? And I would say, it's Mother Earth's land. <laughs> The universe is land. <laughs> but who owns it? So the concept of private property is, yeah. has become so indelibly imprinted on, on, our, on our minds here in the United States. But basically the conquest of, of colonial settler, settler culture in the United States could only have been had happened with the notion of private property. Yeah. And the notion of, so it's land is no longer there for the good of everyone. Only if you own it can you make use of it. And can it exclude others, right? Right. And so collective land ownership, which is very important to the sustainability of agricultural communities, uh, was the way of life of the Native Americans. Yeah, yeah. And it was the way of life in England before the commons was was privatized, right? Collective land and people work out who's going to use what and how they're going to organize themselves. It's a collective process, a local democratic process process yeah yeah but once land has become so-called private property um so that's that's a big philosophical question but social movements are moving against that and pushing toward new ways of looking at land tenancy 
under collective land management. So the land ST, for example, in Brazil, they, when they reoccupy land, they don't get individual titles. They get a collective title. It remains property of the state, and they have usage rights, and they can pass on those usage rights to their children as well. So Usufruct rights, right? Yes. <laughs> word comes to my mind when I think about that. Yeah. So uh, in, in, uh, I do want to move on to another positive example, but I just can't help because it's such an important topic. Our, a lot of our retirement investments in, in things like TIAA for all the academics, right, are actually contributing to this problem and we don't even know it, right? Yes. Unfortunately, the TIAA, which used to be called TIAA Craft and now TIAA, they have invested in land. It's, it's considered a, it's a new sort of brave new investment field to buy farmland a lot of investment, and so turns out TIA is one of them, and they've bought land through unscrupulous intermediaries in Brazil who have been exploiting workers who have ravaged their environments uh, or, who are, or who are buying up large tracts of land that is being used by other people right now and using it for speculation. So there's a there's a big push now to for of, of those who are in TIA, who are a lot of academics, et cetera, who, who are pushing against that and saying, our, we don't want our investments in that kind of situation. It shouldn't be, why should an investment company own agricultural land? Yeah. Right? <laughs> it's just crazy. And uh, there is a whole stop land grabs movement and petition that folks can sign for sure. Uh, and uh, that, that reminds me too, uh, worth pointing out that U of L students are organizing around these issues of irresponsible investments on the part of institutions and um, and they'll be holding a divestment rally this coming Wednesday the 20th at noon at the clock tower so uh, oh, cool. you can join in solidarity with the UofL divestment movement uh, this Wednesday at noon um, okay so <laughs> I want to get to another positive example and that is from Mexico uh, there's been movements to ban glyphosate or also known as roundup right it's everywhere everybody uses it uh and gmos in mexico tell me about that yes no it's been a huge battle and the farmers have made progress and get they've gotten some new laws in place that are being contested in the courts by big ag you know but um you know mexico was the first proving ground for trying to displace the origin of corn and so gmos uh, posed a great threat to that and Monsanto is very keen on Ooh. displacing, I mean, yeah. giving farmers GMO seeds when, and in exchange for native seeds that they would use for genetic uh, research and for um, modifying the, ge- the, the, the genetics in that, that corn. And plus, there were many positive characteristics in native varieties of corn that they were trying to mine for their genome for their genetic uh, research. Anyway, but the, they pushed back really hard because. The, the introduction of these GMOs into Mexico is a great, direct threat to their economy that has supports quite a large proportion of the Mexican population who are corn growers. Who live. And of course, they used to say that you know for every um, for every uh, container full of corn that was being exported from the United States to Mexico, uh, it was displacing two workers. Wow! So there was a there was a, basically a trade where corn was entering Mexico and immigrant workers look desperate for work were going to the United States. Wow. And did this have anything to do with AMLO, the Manuel Lopez Obrador, the, the president level? Not really. Okay. Not really. It was, um, 
it was a long battle and yeah, so, but it's it's up for grabs still. It's not a it's never okay. it's never done. Capitalism can always find a new <laughs> way to to fight back. <laughs> but for now, um, they, it's been quite a big victory in Mexico. Yeah. yeah, yeah, and of course we see some bright signs even here domestically in the U.S. with a continued growth of local food economies, right? And even right here in Louisville, I mean, I've seen some some valuable changes. Not that, like you say, the struggle's never over. It's not like we've won the war but some battles have been won right well the the increase i think the awareness of people especially after covid of how vulnerable our yeah. food system is and also the desire to be healthy and right. get out and be in community um you know going to a farmer's market is a great social event for a lot of people every week and um so yeah we're really thrilled that um many of the immigrant farm families that have moved have been resettled here in, in, in kentucky are now selling their produce at local farmers markets, and um, I, I happen to work as a consultant for Common Earth Gardens, and we we're just real gung ho. I was out at the incubator farm yesterday, and there's all the food is in the ground already, all the greens and wonderful uh, the spring vegetables, and um, those will be at local farmers markets, you know, starting probably in late May and June. Yeah, fantastic, and of course, um, Sol has been supporting some work recently for redistributing vacant lots, right? For green space and communal agricultural production. Tell, tell me about that word. Yeah, so we're, we're thrilled to be able to help food in neighborhoods. Yeah. Which we are a partner of and uh, as a fiscal sponsor. And we've been raising some money, some grant money for scholarships for residents who are interested in turning vacant lots in the West End of Louisville into green spaces for agricultural production, for green space community spaces uh, for events cultural events etc um you know for 500 dollars, sometimes you can get a very nice uh, vacant lot wow um, i know justin's partner amanda yeah. is one of the pioneers in this in turning a vacant lot in portland into an agricultural uh, production place um so yeah this is very exciting we're now looking around we're now um looking for 10 residents in this next period um, to accompany them support them provide them a scholarship to to purchase vacant lots. Uh, and we're trying to streamline the bureaucracy so that this is not an onerous issue to, to buy vacant lots for local residents. And uh, we're thrilled at some of the new producers in the West End who have already taken advantage of our accompaniment and, and have gotten vacant lots and are now producing agriculture in, in Louisville's West End. So wow. I see that as a sign of um, progress and gaining more space, so to speak, for our for our food revolution, good food revolution. So if any of our listeners are interested in learning more about that and potentially applying for these funds, should they go to, go to foodinneighborhoods.org? Yes, Food in Neighborhoods um, website and, and Facebook page. And there's information there about how to get connected with that. That is so exciting. I mean, I have been involved in these acts of turning vacant lots into productive spaces, and I, I, there is nothing more gratifying, right, than seeing this unused kind of eyesore or blight on the community or just underutilized space right here in the heart of our community uh, and turning it into a productive space that brings people in, that brings creatures and wildlife returns right we can keep bees on this land you know these kinds of things are really reinvigorating re-enlivening our urban core and i think there's such a need for that i think we all need to be connected to the earth in some way so having it close by and having yeah. a hand in that having a neighbor you can go and help them weed or go and help them harvest um 
or turn uh, fruits into jam or whatever it may be. You know, it's a, it, it enriches our life in so many ways. Yeah. And we'll end by talking about um, another sort of urban ag, a periphery urban ag project of Laminga Farm. You want to talk a little bit about Laminga? So Laminga is still going on. A lot of people have, who may have come to their harvest parties over the years yeah. may be wondering, but just had this fifth assembly and new officers were voted into the organization. There's a quite a good group of producers, including beekeepers and Mesoamerican farmers producing all kinds of food for themselves and for their families. Nice. And that continues on, so we're really happy about that. And that's out in Prospect? Out in Prospect. Wow. Yeah, that's so excellent. Uh, um, and that, that land has um, got a conservation easement on it, right? Yes. It's it's not threatened by the suburban de- development that we see on so much of our periphery. Correct. Right? Yeah, but while Henry Wallace... Um, Put it into an agricultural conservancy. So yeah, it's quite. Um, the land may change hands in the future, but but we're hoping that the farm Lamingo will continue. Yeah. Well, this has been so exciting. Uh, springtime is such a good time for to have you on, Stephen, to talk about all of this stuff in sustainable agriculture of Louisville. You can learn more about them at salouisville.org. Just a reminder, or if you just tuned in, we want you to come on out starting this week on Thursdays from 5 to 7 p.m. for some weekly garden gatherings at the Saul Community Garden Collective Garden, if you will, in Crescent Hill. Uh, and then we'd love to have you come out for our uh, Tortilla Festival on Sunday, May 22nd at 1 p.m. at George Rogers Clark Park. Oh, and we didn't mention yet the Three Sisters Planting Day, right? Yeah, we're scheduled to start planting on June 5th, Sunday, June 5th, rain day, June 12th. It's always a good time. We have a little ceremony before we plant, and we have a little potluck meal after we're done, and it's really light work because... Adam and Ray, they prepare the land for us, and we just show up with our seeds and uh, use machetes, machetes, some simple hand tools, (laughs) put some seeds in the ground, and then come back in a month and weed, and then come back in the fall and harvest the deliciousness, right? It's amazing. You all want to get on on this. It's it's a great thing. So go to salouisville.org to learn more. Thank you so much for coming in the studio today, Stephen. It was great. It's always a pleasure, Justin. Love, love your show, Justin. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much. All right. Stay tuned, everybody. Coming up in just a second, it's your community action calendar with all kinds of ideas for things to get engaged in sustainability this week. So stay tuned, my friends, and get your pencil sharpened.
And we are back here on Sustainability Now with me, Justin Mogg, and I hope you've got your pencils sharpened and your calendar out, my friend, because this week is busy for sustainability in Louisville with Earth Day coming up on Friday. There's a lot going on, and I hope you can get engaged with it. Coming up Tuesday, April 19th at 5 p.m. at the Muhammad Ali Center, it's Brides for Sale, Women Working to End Child Marriage. You can join the World Affairs Council of Kentucky and Southern Indiana in conversation with Marta Miranda Straub, the Commissioner of the Department for Community-Based Services, and Sonita Alazade, a young African, uh, Afghan rapper working to end child marriage. Sonita was honored with the Muhammad Ali Corps Principal Award for Conviction by the Ali Center last year. She was born in Herat, Afghanistan, under the reign of the Taliban. Her family walked hundreds of miles to Iran to escape, and she grew up an impoverished, undocumented refugee street child in Tehran. And at the age of 10, she was sold into forced marriage. The contract fell through, but her family again tried to sell her when she was 16. She escaped. Her story can be viewed in the award-winning documentary Sonita, which premiered at Sundance in 2016. More than 12 million girls are forced to marry every year in the world, and Sonita hopes to aid in finding a solution to the problem to help save the lives of the next generation. This program is free. It includes a light reception at 5 p.m., but registration is required, and you can do so in advance at alicenter.org. Sonita is an inspiration. I hope you come on out Tuesday at 5 p.m. to hear from her directly at the Ali Center. Now, also, just after that on Tuesday the 19th at 7 p.m., it's uh, Forward Radio's proud community partner, the Greater Louisville Sierra Club, inviting you to join them via Zoom as they welcome David Kinlock Brown presenting Developing Low-Impact Hydropower in Kentucky. David is president of Lock 7 and Lock 12 Hydro Partners, Appalachian Hydro Assets Associates Incorporated, and Shaker Landing Hydro Associates Incorporated. David will discuss and explain the concerns and impacts of hydropower and how projects can mitigate those potential problems. Lock 7 on the Kentucky River near Harrodsburg is certified by the Low Impact Hydropower Institute, of which Sierra Club is a part. David is currently working on the certification application for a new project at Lock 12 on the Kentucky River near Ravenna, which will be the state's first new small-scale hydroelectric plant in 90 years. He'll discuss the construction process done in partnership with Berea College. The turbines provide enough electricity to power about 1,200 homes and will supply about half of the college's energy needs on an annual basis. You won't want to miss it. It's going to be a fascinating conversation with David. Registration is at tinyurl.com slash GLSC Hydropower. That's the Greater Louisville Sierra Club. tinyurl.com slash GLSC Hydropower. Or you can always find the link to register for their monthly programs at sierraclub.org slash Kentucky. Now, Project Warm's Energy Management Workshops wrap up this week on April 20th, Wednesday. 
10 a.m. at Beside You Pregnancy Center, 701 West Muhammad Ali Boulevard. During these work, tips and techniques are demonstrated, which are designed to help reduce your gas, water, and electricity bills throughout the entire year. Weatherization is important all year long, and these workshops are important even while the warmer months are ahead of us. Get in touch at projectwarm.org if you're part of an organization interested in hosting a workshop with Project Warm, or come on out this Wednesday at 10 a.m. at Beside You Pregnancy Center, 701 West Muhammad Ali Boulevard. And also on Wednesday the 20th at noon at the SAC Clock Tower, it is the rescheduled UofL Divestment Rally, which I announced on last week's program and it got rained out. Well, it's hosted by the Student Sustainability Coalition, which urges the University of Louisville to divest funds from fossil fuels, policing, private prisons, and more. You can read and sign the petition and find more information at louisville.edu slash sustainability. Speakers at the Wednesday noon event at the Clock Tower will be Shamika Parrish-Wright, a mayoral candidate and activist, Betsy Rui, metro candidate and founder of Orchards of Beachmont and Sustainable South Louisville, and our very first sustainability graduate at the University of Louisville, and UofL student Ashanti Scott speaking on behalf of her mother, Representative Attica Scott. You won't want to miss it. There'll be art supplies and signs on hand, and you're welcome to bring your own signage about divestment. More information is at louisville.edu slash sustainability, but we hope to see you Wednesday at noon at the Clock Tower. Now, also on Wednesday the 20th at 6 p.m., it's the April Green Drinks, this time in person at the Louisville Grows Greenhouse at 1639 Portland Avenue. You can come learn about Louisville Grows, an environmental nonprofit established in 2009 whose mission is to grow greener, healthier neighborhoods through programs focused on urban forestry, agriculture, and sustainability. The Seeds and Start Sale is Louisville Grows' annual fundraiser with proceeds going directly to support community garden grants which are awarded in april all of the plants sold are started and intended by louisville grows volunteers and in addition to vegetables you can find herbs native flowers fruit trees berry bushes soil compost and mulch you can come learn more at louisville sustainability council's green drinks a free casual bi-monthly meetup all attendees are asked to be fully vaccinated or wear a mask, and everyone is welcome and encouraged to bring their own libations to this event, 6 p.m. Wednesday at the Louisville Grows Greenhouse, 1639 Portland Avenue. You can always find more information about green drinks at louisvillesustainabilitycouncil.org. Well, we're done with Wednesday. Let's move on to Thursday, April 21st at noon. It's uh you know, our founding organization, the Fellowship of Reconciliation, and our proud community partner, the Sowers of Justice Network, hosting their third Thursday lunch series on April 21st with Anatole Levin on ways to end Putin's war. The British journalist, historian, and policy analyst Anatole Levin explains the Ukrainian-Russian crisis via an historical perspective, complete with documentation that is not being presented by the mainstream media. Anatole Levin, best known for his expertise on the Taliban of Afghanistan, is currently a visiting professor at King's College London and senior fellow at the Quincy Institute and author of the book Ukraine and Russia. The event will be live streamed on the Sowers of Justice Facebook page, which you can find at facebook.com slash S-O-J-N 
L-O-U, and it will be rebroadcast here on Forward Radio, and you can join the Zoom by registering at louisvillefor.org. Third Thursday Lunch, of course, is sponsored by Fellowship of Reconciliation and Sowers of Justice, two faith-based advocacy groups that work for justice through education and action. And just a reminder, as we mentioned during the interview, this Thursday, April 21st at 5 p.m. will be the start of the weekly Sustainable Agriculture of Louisville Gardening Parties, gathering at the Saul Community Garden behind Crescent Hill Presbyterian Church at 142 Crescent Avenue. Just bring yourself ready to garden and share in the abundance. You can bring families and children are always welcome. Learn more at salouisville.org and we'll see you out there this Thursday and every Thursday from 5 till about 7 p.m. Now, Friday is Earth Day, April 22nd, and it begins at 9.30 a.m. with an Earth Day Sand Island Paddle and Cleanup. Uh, Kentucky Waterways Alliance, in partnership with the Ohio River Paddle Sports and 12 other co-sponsors, will celebrate the beauty of the Ohio River with a canoe paddle and cleanup of Sand Island. Join us for an Earth Day celebration of our Ohio River through paddlecraft exploring and cleaning up the islands of the falls of the Ohio National Wildlife Conservation Area. Participants can register to paddle in a Voyager canoe with River City Paddle Sports and Metro Parks Natural Area's Big canoes with a capacity of about 50 paddlers you can join in our in your own boat to paddle up to sand island or join us on the shore at shawnee park uh, at 9 30 a.m for an earth day send-off celebration right there at shawnee park as part of the celebration uh, kwa's artist in residence al gorman will create a sculpture with found objects on the island the sand island earth day event is a celebration of the ohio river the biodiversity of its islands and the organizations dedicated to our river and the falls of the ohio keeping our rivers and creeks clean is a community-wide effort the event is free and open to the public. And more information and signups are available at kwalliance.org. Now, also on Earth Day, Friday at noon at the University of Louisville's Maine Humanities Quad, we'll be having an EcoReps Earth Day Lunch and Learn uh, celebrating our UofL maple syrup harvest for the year with a pancake party and a climate strike. UofL maple syrup uh, is available uh, thanks to volunteers who help tap over the winter. You can join our monthly EcoReps workshop to sample some of it. We'll wrap up the year and celebrate Earth Day with the return of this annual maple syrup celebration. Come enjoy some pancakes with your very own hyper-local maple syrup syrup while we talk trees and local sweetness with our community partner dave parker these delicious pancakes will be served up with a little climate strike on the side so come for the pancakes stay for the politics this is the last in our spring series of eco reps workshops all are welcome more information is at louisville.edu sustainability and we hope to see you friday on earth day at noon out in the humanity squad now just after that, at 3 p.m. on Friday, we welcome you online for a UofL Earth Day Learning Cafe. Yes, in my backyard. Awesome ideas from Bernheim for you to try at home. While it may be true that Bernheim Art Arboretum and Research Forest's 16,000 acres are a little bigger than your average backyard, this beautiful place is full of inspiring ideas to help the average homeowner make their own habitat more sustainable. You can join Bernheim's Director of Education, Kristen Forrest, 
Coast and U of L Assistant Director of Composition Cooper Day for an Earth Day workshop featuring an enjoyable slideshow of some of the amazing ways Bernheim is pioneering sustainable choices. The slideshow will be followed by a lively and thought-provoking discussion of how our humble and everyday choices can add up to big differences. You can find the link to register for this free event uh, at louisville.edu slash sustainability. And we hope to see you Friday online at 3 p.m. Now, on Saturday the 23rd, it's a garden and plant swap out at Wyandotte Park at Taylor Boulevard at the Waterson from 9 a.m. to noon. If you want new tools and plants for your garden without breaking the bank and need to free up space in your garden or shed or want to connect with fellow gardeners, well, this is your event. Bring any extra tools, plants, planters, lawn decorations, etc. to Wyandotte Park on Saturday the 23rd to donate or swap. There will be categories set up so you can drop up what you have in the appropriate place before you shop around. And if you don't have anything to swap, that's okay. Sometimes you just need a few tools and plants to get started. It's a free swap. Absolutely no items will be allowed for sale. Popular items of the past have include bulbs, garden fencing, wheelbarrows, herbs, succulents, seed packets, hoses, planter boxes, and tools. The Jefferson County Soil and Water Conservation District and other environmental partners will be on hand with organization information and to offer gardening advice. So don't miss it. More information is at facebook.com slash Louisville Community Gardens. We're just coming out this Saturday, 9 a.m. to noon at Wyandotte Park. Also on Saturday the 23rd from 9 a.m. to noon, there'll be a storm drain marking project uh, to protect Beargrass Creek. Uh, they'll be meeting up at St. Mark's Episcopal Church, 2822 Frankfurt Avenue. Kentucky Waterways Alliance, in partnership with the Rotary Club, is hosting a storm drain marking volunteer project in Crescent Hill. Volunteers will affix curb stickers to storm drains to alert citizens that stuff flowing down the storm drains empty directly into Beargrass Creek. Advanced registration is required. Go to kwalliance.org to register. And Louisville's uh, Community Groceries, a free deli up tasting, is also happening again on Saturday the 23rd from 11 a.m. to 2 p.m. at Better Days West Records, 672 South 28th Street. If you miss them at Ford Radio's birthday party or want to sample some new items, these free tastings offer a dozen different deli items that the co-op is seeking feedback on, plus music and the chance to meet their lovely trainees. Come on out this Saturday, 11 a.m. to 2 p.m. at Better Days West Records. Learn more at LouisvilleCommunityGrocery.com. And lastly, the Kentucky Poor People's Campaign Forward Together Community Festival will be happening Saturday, April 23rd from noon to 4 at the First Unitarian Church at 4th and York. An afternoon of food, music, and mobilizing toward the Poor People's and Low Wage Workers Assembly and Moral March on Washington and to the polls coming up on June 18th in Washington. DC, but come on out this Saturday, the 23rd, noon to four at First Unitarian at 4th and York for the Community Festival. All right, that's all the time we have for today here on Sustainability Now. Thank you so much for tuning in, everybody, and I look forward to being back in your ears again in one week's time. Be well. Be well.